Well, to all of you who are Susie's family, first of all, I want to acknowledge officially that there is no pain on earth worse than being separated by death. There really isn't, and the conversations that you long to have, they can't happen anymore. The delights of interaction and communication that are taken away, it feels cruel, it feels brutal, it feels wrong. And as was mentioned earlier here at Grace Bible Church, we were blessed to interact with Susie quite a bit in the past years and even had the privilege of baptizing her in the genuine Christian faith in front of witnesses. And I do remember her testimony. It did go on for some time, and it was a delight to all of us, though. But I am I'm so sorry for your loss, and I'm so sorry for what you're going through, and I'm sorry for what this will be for years to come. But I do know this, and for all of us here, this is something important to know. Susanna loved the Lord Jesus Christ. And she had surrendered her life to him. And as she is currently in his presence, we're gathering not to be sad for her, but to mourn our loss and our grief. But in the midst of loss and grief, the Bible is filled with comforts. And so I'd like to just share for a few minutes this afternoon three comforting truths from the Bible. And I've boiled it down to just three words. Those three comforting truths are heaven, sovereignty, and gospel. And I'd like to just talk to you about them. This is straight from the Bible. The first comforting truth is heaven. There's so much to look forward to in heaven. The Bible actually speaks of a new heaven, and that's another topic maybe for another time. But the Bible tells us extensively what heaven is like right now, at this very moment, what Susanna is experiencing. There is an immediate comfort in heaven. Part of this immediate comfort is the fact that the transition from earth to heaven is instant. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, We are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. There's no waiting period. There's no long tunnel. There's no bus stop waiting for the next train to heaven. Heaven as it is right now is the place that Revelation 7 says, God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. This means that the very moment that Susanna entered into the presence of God in heaven, every regret, every sadness was gone. It was taken away completely. And in fact, as part of this immediate comfort, heaven is described in terms that remind us of home. In Hebrews chapter 11 Words for heaven are used like homeland and land and country and city. Things that we're familiar with, things that feel like home to us. Heaven is a kingdom, it's a country, a homeland, a land. So everything that you love and adore about the concept of home, heaven is that, infinitely more. But unlike a lot of maybe our misperceptions, heaven is also filled with physical surroundings. Heaven isn't just some cloud with some invisible people playing harps here and there. There there are physical things in heaven. There's lush vegetation. Jesus gave a perfect one-word description of heaven. He called it paradise. Paradise means a walled garden. There are trees in heaven. Revelation 7-9 describes heaven as it is right now with people from every nation on earth with palm branches in their hands. 
where would you get palm branches? There's only one place you get them, and that's from palm trees. Trees growing in heaven. I know that seems to kind of go against our, our uh, kind of stereotypes, but the Lord of creation certainly won't limit himself to palm trees. Undoubtedly, oak, maple, sequoia, pine, apple, orange, everything you can think of. Heaven has a sky. Ezekiel 122 describes heaven as having the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal, spread out over the heads of all the great and the mighty angels. If earth has such a glorious sky, why would heaven be any less? Our sky now is already awe-inspiring, but the sky of heaven will make the sky of earth seem like a broken, dull blue crayon. How about animals? 2 Kings 2.11 tells us the story of heaven sending chariots and horses of fire to accompany the prophet Elijah to heaven. Every stage of God's redemptive plan for mankind has included animals. Before the flood of Noah, after the flood, in the coming kingdom of Christ on earth in Isaiah 11, God cared enough about his creation of animals to include them on Noah's ark. They weren't the ones who rebelled against God in sin. That was humanity. So you can expect to see the most glorious array of animals ever assembled. In fact, some of the main angels in heaven called living creatures are depicted as lions and eagles and oxen even. How about physical enjoyment in heaven? We'll have a real physical body. Now we know from the Bible that the resurrection of all the believers in Christ, that happens later on in redemptive history. But that doesn't mean that the saints in heaven now are without some sort of a body. There's very strong evidence for this in Scripture. The unresurrected martyrs of Revelation chapter 6 are depicted as having physical bodies. The unresurrected Moses and Elijah both appeared in physical form with Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. The unresurrected Abraham in Luke 16 is depicted with a physical body. And, and if there are physical bodies, then obviously there must be food. Now, food won't be necessary to sustain life, but who could imagine heaven without food? I mean, one of God's angels assures us that blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He said marriage supper, not marriage cocktail party. It's marriage supper. And what kind of supper would it be without some goodies? How about wine to go with that food? What would the celebration meal be like without the best of the best wine? Jesus promised in Matthew 26 that he would not drink of this fruit of the vine, wine, until that day when he drinks it anew with you in his Father's kingdom. How about clothing? The saints of Revelation 7 are depicted in what seemed to be the primary color of heaven, which is brilliant white. But this is a scene of an official corporate worship gathering. It doesn't necessarily mean that you'd only wear white forever. God is the one who clothes the lilies of the field, according to Matthew 6. And lilies come in several thousand varieties. And when Jesus is talking about the lilies of the field, he's comparing them to clothing. And so I imagine that the glorious wardrobe of heaven will not disappoint you. It is to God's glory to adorn his people with beauty. And of course, any discussion of clothing should remind us of color. 
Revelation 4.3 says that just the throne of God alone, this is just the throne, has a rainbow of color around it, a rainbow that looks like an emerald. I don't know how that works, but in heaven we'll know. The gorgeous colors of red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. These are the colors that are visible to us right now. But even science has taught us that there are colors that are beyond what is visible. Infrared, right beyond red. Ultraviolet, right beyond violet. And certainly, heaven will reveal the full rainbow of God. Who knows? There may be millions of colors. And you instinctively know the emotional and the, the joyful feeling the benefits of color. Heaven will also include spiritual delights. Spiritual delights such as the prayers of the saints. Revelation 5.8 says that in the throne room of God there are golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints that the prayers of every Christian from every age including yours are held in honor and in esteem to be answered each and every one of them. There is also the Christian's reward. Often in the New Testament, the reward of the believer is pictured as a crown. In Revelation 4, shows the saints casting their crowns before the Lord in gratitude. In Matthew 19, Jesus is speaking of his own glorious throne in the age to come. And that in this time, he says, believers will receive houses and lands and an eternal family with whom to enjoy eternal life. That's the spiritual delight of reward. How about music? Certainly, music will be what you're immediately greeted with in heaven. In all the major passages on heaven in the Bible, song is always featured. Revelation 5.8 speaks of a choir made up of every believer in history singing a glorious anthem to Christ himself. And we know about the stereotypical harps of heaven, right? But how about the trumpets of heaven? How about the lutes? Those are guitars of heaven. How about the tambourines? How about the strings and the flutes and the wind instruments and the cymbals and the drums, all the full orchestra of heaven? And you say, oh, where are you getting that? Well, we get that from Psalm 150. These are all the instruments lifted in Psalm 150 where we hear that we are praising God in heaven. And what's music without dancing? Psalm 150 verse 4 says that we will praise him in his mighty heavens and praise him with tambourine and dance. This is a very specific Hebrew word in the Old Testament that means a dance where you hold hands with your loved ones, form a circle and dance in the circle with joy and gratitude. There will be worship structures in heaven. The temple of God is in heaven Hebrews 8.5 tells us that the temple of God that was built on earth is just a copy. It's just a shadow of the real temple. And there is, of course, the throne room of God. This is the, the central feature of the temple. Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 describes his throne room in terms of precious stones, brilliant light, crystal floors, brilliant skies, the brilliance of the glory of God himself. In heaven is the real Ark of the Covenant If the temple on earth was just a model of the real thing, the Ark of the Covenant given to Israel to signify the presence of God, that was just a model as well. The altar of God is in heaven. Revelation 6-9 depicts martyrs standing under the altar, millions of them. It must be massive in size and in scope and in beauty. 
Revelation 8.3 depicts an angel standing at this altar offering prayers of all the saints to the Lord. You ever wonder about the tree of life? Well, that's in heaven as well. Revelation 2.7, Jesus himself says that right now, at this moment, just like in the Garden of Eden so long ago, the tree of life is in heaven. What does that mean? It means that the redemptive plan for mankind is still going. This is the original place of worship. Revelation 22 says that God will transplant the tree of life, as it were, and put it right on Main Street in the New Jerusalem someday. How about relational fulfillment? Complete, total relational fulfillment. Now, we think of angels when we think of heaven. Isaiah 6 pictures the seraphim, the burning ones, loudly proclaiming that God is holy, 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 Revelation 5 tells us of myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands of angels worshiping God along with the saints. So you'll have relational fulfillment with the angels. How about a grand reunion? That's one of our greatest hopes, isn't it? You know, King David in 2 Samuel 7, he had a baby boy and that baby boy died. And he comforted himself by saying, I will go to where he is. Genesis 49 tells the story of the death of Jacob, which is described as being gathered to his people, gathered to his family. You will see every saint from every age. You'll enjoy perfect communion with them. You're going to meet Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, all the apostles, all the believers from every church, from every, uh, all of history, the countless, endless joys of reunion and relationship and precious fellowship that you'll enjoy is really beyond comprehension. But most importantly, in relational fulfillment, you'll meet God. You'll meet God the Father. That's not possible now. Exodus 33, God said, no one can see him and live. But in heaven, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God you'll meet the Holy Spirit, the first manifested showing of the Holy Spirit. By definition, the Holy Spirit is invisible, but he can take on physical forms such as the dove at Jesus' baptism. Revelation 4, 5 pictures the Holy Spirit in heaven as, as if he is seven torches of fire before the throne of God. And of course, you'll have your first face-to-face meeting with Jesus. 16 days ago, Susanna saw Jesus for the first time. You know what the Bible says? You shall see him as he is, meaning in all of his glory, all of his wonder. So heaven is such a comfort. But there's a second comforting truth from the Bible. Sovereignty. The sovereignty of God says that all things have been ordained and have been fixed by God. And I know some people find that difficult and some even maybe find it offensive, but that's just simply what the Bible teaches. God says about himself in Isaiah 46 that he declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done. Lamentations 3 God says, who is there who speaks and it happens unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good go forth? Now, God cannot sin. God cannot look on evil. 
but he uses sinful things for his purposes. For example, death is the result of sin, and yet death is the means by which the believer in Christ goes to heaven. And just because we can't see the full picture of God's plan and purposes doesn't mean he's not doing something marvelous. We see tragedy and pain, and yet it's an opportunity to trust the Lord. The book of Acts says that someday Christ is returning, and it's called the period of restoration of all things, where all the mysterious puzzle pieces of life get put together. There's no way to trust truly in God without trusting his sovereign will, that only his purposes are good, and whether we understand them or not, it's not really the point. It's whether we trust his will or not. Now, think about this. Death, from a human standpoint, is an other tragedy, including the death of Christ. Christ was the only perfect man. He was fully God, fully human, who's ever lived, and he was murdered by wicked men. But why did it happen? And the Bible tells us why it happened. Acts chapter 2 says it was according to the predetermined plan of God. It was God's plan. Why is the sovereignty of God a comfort? Well, the only other alternative is a non-sovereign God. A God who is not completely in control of everything. What does that mean? It means logically there are things and events outside of God's control. That's a universe that's in chaos, and, and we can't have that. I was telling Susie's family a little bit about my own dad. He grew up in a religious system that taught him that God is partly in control. As he developed in his faith and he saw in Scripture that God caused everything and was behind everything, including the things we can't understand, he came to believe in the sovereignty of God, including the things that hurt, including the things that feel terrible at the time. I was having a phone conversation with him once, and he said offhandedly, Hey, Steve, just to let you know, I, I want you to preach at my funeral. And I asked him, Well, are you sick? No, he was fine. I want you to preach at my funeral. And he said, and I want you to preach the sovereignty of God, understanding that he went to a church that did not believe in the sovereignty of God. In God's providence, that was the last phone call I ever had with him. He was killed in a car accident a few days later. And so I preached on the sovereignty of God to a church full of people who didn't understand why a good God could allow such a gracious man like my dad to be killed in such tragic fashion. I explained to them the sovereignty of God from Scripture that God had ordained the day of his death. I read to them Psalm 139.16, Your eyes have seen my unshaped substance, and in your book all of them were written, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Do you catch that? God has already planned all of your days. They're already planned out. There's a third comfort from Scripture, and it's related to the first two. The only way to truly believe the sovereignty of God and the only way to get to the heaven that I described is the third comfort, and that is the gospel, the good news of Christ. We could divide what the Bible says about the gospel into four simple words, God, man, Jesus, and sinners. That's the gospel. God. God owns and created everything. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. 
God is perfectly holy. 1 John 1.5 says, God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. And because he's holy, God requires perfect obedience to his law. James 2.10 says, whoever keeps all of the law of God and yet stumbles once is guilty of all of it. That's God. Then we can consider man. Man has broken God's law. Romans 3 says, there is none righteous, not even one. All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And mankind will pay the eternal penalty for sin. It's eternal. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why is the penalty eternal? Because sin is eternal. You can't ever make up for it. And someone might even say, well, I'm a pretty good person. But God's standard is not pretty good. God's standard is perfect. And man can't save himself by good works or by trying to be religious even. Titus 3.5 says that God saved us not on the basis of deeds we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Ephesians 2 says, by grace you have been saved through faith. This not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. And someone may say, well, God will look at all my good works and he'll be pleased with that. But Isaiah 64 says, all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. Good works can't make up for sin. That's a human self-righteous idea. Sin requires a penalty because you can't undo it. You can't untell a lie. You can't unmurder somebody. You can't unsteal. And the one who is most offended is God because God alone is holy and pure. And that leaves us in a major difficulty, doesn't it? Because God is holy and I'm not. But that brings us to Jesus. Jesus Christ came to earth as both God and sinless man. He demonstrated God's love by dying on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The rightful wrath of God was headed toward every sinner. But Jesus Christ stepped in between you and God and absorbed the full fury of God's wrath and indignation and Jesus took in his body and his soul an eternity of torment instead of you. And Christ rose again from the grave and he's alive today. Why is that so important? It's important that he rose from the dead because that shows that the price is paid in full. That sin's penalty is paid. God, man, Christ, how about sinners? With this knowledge, sinners must repent of all that dishonors God. Isaiah 55 says, let the wicked forsake his way. Jesus said in Luke 9, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. To repent means to change your mind. It means to change your loyalty. I'm no longer loyal to my sin. I'm loyal to my God. And sinners must believe in Christ as Lord and Savior. There's a little phrase that is kind of a stereotypical cultural phrase, even in a lot of churches, that being made right with God means having, here's the phrase, a relationship with Jesus. Can I tell you that every human being has a relationship with Jesus? 
you will either be related to him in terms of him being your judge or you are related to him in terms of him being your savior. But every human being has a relationship with Jesus. But Jesus is the one who issues such a kind invitation. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Susanna believed the gospel. She also loved those around her. She loved very deeply. She loved intensely. And if I could just say in all love, if you don't know Christ, you will never see Susanna again unless you know her Savior. The only way to ever see her again is to know Christ. And because she believed the gospel, she believed in the sovereignty of God. And because she believed the gospel, she is in heaven. I don't have this opportunity today, but sometimes in memorial services, we'll have the body of the deceased right here in front of me. Could I say this? If there was the body of the deceased in front of us, every one of you will have your turn. Every one of you, myself included. And so how you relate to Christ is everything. I I can't speak for Susanna, but I can take a pretty good guess that her number one desire for all who are here is to be reunited with her by being reunited with Christ someday. And so that's my prayer as well. Our Father, we thank you for your word, which gives us such comfort. These are truths that are mind-blowing, to think that there is a heaven right now populated by countless millions of believers who have gone on before. And just a little over two weeks ago, Susanna entering into your presence, coming to that incredible joy that she even now is experiencing. Lord, I, I pray for her family. This is unbearable grief. It is unspeakable pain. Oh, I pray you would give them comfort. I pray that they would be comforted by your love. They would be comforted by one another and certainly comforted by the knowledge that Susie is pain-free. She's stronger and, and younger than all of us now. She is perfected. And so I pray for this precious family that you would comfort them in their time of loss. And I pray for all who know Susie that they would consider the words that she believed that if you confess with your mouth, that if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. She believed this. May all who knew her believe as well. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.